things that make you go, hmm. All right, just, uh, you know, your average Sunday morning intro to a sermon right there for you. <laughs> well, it's good to be here with all of you this morning, kind of in the vacation and traveling season. Um, I love this kind of, this time of year, we have uh, teams out serving and, and, and traveling the world to do missions, and, and a lot of our people are, are traveling on vacation. That always reminds me of just how big our God is and how there's people on all corners of the globe this morning and uh, all throughout the day who are worshiping our God. And it's, it's fun to remember that, you know, we're just one expression here in Encinitas, and we have brothers and sisters all over the uh, town and the San Diego and the country and the world who are worshiping our God this morning. So it's, it's good to be here. Uh, my wife and I just got back from our trip. I've been gone for a few weeks. And so um, I w- took a, a trip with just my boys up to Seattle. And I uh, met my wife up there. She didn't want to drive with us. Um, <laughs> she was on her own trip with her mom and sisters. So we went up there, met her, and then I spent some time camping. I got back just in time to do a wedding yesterday and here with you this morning. So it's good to be back with you. Uh, yesterday, though, at this wedding, I was thinking, weddings are one of those things, or the rituals, that I think people, no matter where you are from any part of the globe, I could probably take someone from a small village somewhere and bring them to a wedding, and they could watch the wedding and kind of get a gist of what's happening. Weddings are one of those ceremonies that, you know, they would figure out, okay, there's a man and a woman, there's somebody talking, uh, they gave each other a ring or something, they kissed, and my guess is that probably means that whatever their culture calls marriage, that's what happened. And they could probably assume that those people are going to start a family together and all that. You know, weddings are not too hard, no matter what your culture is, to figure out. But I was wondering, what would happen if I took a picture of one moment of the wedding day and showed it to someone? For example... Let's say they just cut their wedding cake or picked up their wedding cupcakes or whatever people use these days. And they picked them up and they look at each other in a good Western fashion and smash them in each other's face. And what if I took a picture of the, hus- the new husband and wife like this, kind of smashing something in each other's face? And that was a picture. And then I took that picture and showed it to someone in a remote village and said, what do you think is happening here? Now maybe some of us, if we saw that picture and saw that there was a tux and a wedding dress, even if all you saw was that picture, you'd probably say, oh, I bet that's their wedding and they're smashing cake in each other's face because that makes total sense. But, um, so maybe we could figure it out. But I wonder what they would think, someone who's never seen that before. What kind of things would they think? Would they think, why are those people angry at each other? They're, they're punching each other in the face. I don't think the first conclusion would be, oh, that couple looks happily, you know, they just got married. They're in love. Look at that. They're hitting each other in the face. <laughs> With just that snapshot, the picture for someone who doesn't know the whole story is really confusing. So to really kind of get it, they would have to ask some questions like, well, what happened leading up to this moment when they're hitting each other in the face? What happened just before that? And maybe they see them cut a cake and pick it up and they're smiling and laughing and they say, oh, okay, this must be a happy moment. (laughs) What happens after it? Maybe they'd want to see. What happened after they smash the cake? Does one of them storm off angry? Or then do they kind of smile and kiss and wipe the cake off their face? Which they'll get over that in a year or two, but at least, you know, wedding day, they can do that, right? 
oh, that was cute. You got me all full of cake. And so you see what happens after, and they'd understand it a little bit more. Now, you might be saying, well, Ryan, okay, I get it. What's the deal with the cake? This morning, we're beginning a series called Things That Make You Go, Hmm. And the series is really, it's six weeks, we're going to be studying different stories in Scripture that maybe they're stories that you've read, and you read it and you say, hmm, why is that in there? Or you say, what is the point of this story? Or maybe you think, God, seriously, is this a picture of who you are or your people? This doesn't make any sense. And the point of this series is not just to study six random stories, but it's to help us become people who, when we interact with Scripture, no matter if you've been doing it for 60 years or you've never read the Bible, we want to become people who can read that and learn how to take a step back, like looking at one picture from the wedding, and saying, what is really going on here? To learn how to back it up a little bit and say, what's the real story before this? What happens after? What's, what are we supposed to learn from this event? And so the point of this series that we'll be going through is so together we can practice this whole idea of reading Scripture. And hopefully some of these stories that make you go, hmm, at the end, that you still might say, hmm, really? But at least with a little more clarity. (laughs) Because most of Scripture, we're always going to be scratching our head a little bit. There's always a little faith involved. But that's the point of what we're doing over the next six weeks. And these are stories that you submitted and asked for. If you submitted one and asked for it and we don't address it, uh, you can send your complaints to Dale. He's in Africa. And uh, we'll try to, we're thinking about uh, doing some blogs or other things to answer some of the a- additional questions because we can't get to everything. But that's the point of what our series is. Now, as we do this series, the other thing is this. Here at Seacoast, we believe that the God of our Bible is this God who sees our world as a broken place, people who are a little bit broken, sometimes messed up, Sometimes we just don't get it, but we have a God who created this place and who's interested in redeeming and restoring us to relationship with him. And we believe that the Bible talks and reveals the character of this God and the story of his reaching out and redeeming and restoring us as people. So when we read these stories, we want to look at it and say, what do we learn about a God? If this is a God who loves us, who's working to make all things new, how does this fit? with our picture or the narrative of who God is. So as we study these stories, we want to keep that in mind. Now, as we get started, I want to just give you a few principles that we're going to apply every week. And if you love to take notes, uh, they're actually in your notes today in the bulletin. If you don't, you can just smile and nod and look at me. That's fine too. Some of you like to just listen. That's more of my style. So however you like it. But in your notes, you'll notice there's just four points that we're going to address. And these are intended for these four things we're going to apply to each story that we read. And that they're great tools. Anytime you interact with Scripture, you want to kind of have these things in mind. Now, there are more things to have in mind than just these four, but we're going to keep it as uh, simplified as we can because it's very important. So we're going to go through those really quickly before we get into today's story. So the first thing we want to keep in mind when we interact with Scripture is this statement here is believe that Scripture is truth. Now that might sound kind of simple, but when we interact with Scripture, we want to approach it with the belief that what we're reading is truth. This is not just a collection of fables that are intended to give us nice stories and and good principles we can apply, but 
what's contained in these pages are words that are inspired by God. They're written by human authors. So there's the fingerprints of humans. You can see different personalities and characteristics in the writings. But they're inspired by God and they're truth. And in the Bible, we have a collection of there's some historical writings. And again, the history isn't exhaustive. It doesn't tell you the history of everything that happened to the people. And it doesn't tell you the history of every culture. But it tells you the history that helps explain the story of God's interaction with his people. There are, there's a lot of poetry. Uh, there's writings that are sometimes just trying to express emotions and feelings. There's songs that are written uh, in scripture. You have letters. There's pastoral letters that are written by um, people like Paul and, and a guy named Peter and James and different people who wrote letters to churches to give them words of encouragement. You have things called prophecies, which are not just about the future. In fact, often they're to explain a present event. Uh, but there are some other things in there. So this is a collection of all these different writings that are in there. But we believe fundamentally that what we read is true. And that, that when we read the historical writings, for example, these stories, there's 11 books in the Old Testament that basically tell you the historical story of the Old Testament. And there's about five that explain the New Testament, the Gospels and the Book of Acts. And those kind of give you the, the story, the historical background of Scripture. Again, is this history exhaustive? No, it is not. But we believe what's described in the pages is true. Uh, a couple things to keep in mind, though. One, we do not approach the Bible as if it is a historical textbook. It's not intended just to be a textbook on history. And it's also not a scientific textbook. Now, we, there are things in Scripture that are scientifically true. But don't use the Bible. The Bible's not intended to give the scientific explanation for how things work. And sometimes skeptics will say, well, see, the Bible's wrong about this and it's science. And like, well, it's not trying to explain it from a scientific perspective. A good example is Scripture uses the language to say the sun will go down at night. And we all understand what that means. The sun, when the sun goes down or the sun rises, we know now that the sun doesn't actually go down and the sun doesn't actually rise. The earth rotates. If you didn't know that, I'll explain it to you later. But in Scripture, it says the sun goes down. There was a time in history when people would read that and say, oh, see, the Bible teaches that the sun moves around the earth, so that must be true. Well, later, if, the, if you believe that to be true and you find out that's wrong, then you say, oh, maybe the Bible's false. Well, the Bible's using figurative language in that case to describe what we totally get even in our language. But it wasn't intended to be the scientific explanation of how the sun moves around, or how <laughs> the sun appears to move around the earth. So it's not a scientific textbook, though it does possess, possess truth within it. Now, also, when we look at it, we believe it's true because we have found that there's plenty of archaeology that has confirmed a lot of what we read. With that said, I do want you to know that his archaeology has not confirmed everything that you read in Scripture. There are things that you read that there is no evidence archaeologically, any archaeological evidence for those events. We don't believe that means they're not true. It's just we don't have evidence of those happening. There's plenty of things like that in the world. But we have so much historical evidence or archaeological evidence that confirms things that happen that it leads us to believe the other things are probably true. I worked with a professor in uh, Jerusalem when we were living there, and he's one of the top uh, professors of, of Jerusalem archaeology. And he used to have this saying for us, for example... At the time, there was debate about, is there any evidence that King David ever existed? In fact, there's very little evidence. There's one inscription that was found recently 
that says the house of David. That's it. And it was in northern Israel. But there's no other evidence, extra biblical or anything, that says that King David existed before that time. And people could say, see, we haven't found evidence that he existed, so he didn't exist. Yet we had tons of evidence that every other king after him existed. So my professor would often say, if you were to make an argument out of silence, in other words, because it didn't exist, to say King David didn't exist because we can't find evidence, he'd say, if you're going to argue from silence, you need to make sure the silence is very loud. Now think about that for a moment. Some of you are saying, Ryan, just get on with your sermon. Okay, I will. In other words, just because we don't have evidence of something doesn't mean it didn't exist. Because there's so many other things that say, well, if all of this is accurate, why would we disbelieve this? So we believe when we interact with these stories that they happen to real people at a real time in history. And they don't always make sense. And sometimes they're supernatural, and we'll get to it when we need to get to that. But so begin with the belief that what you believe is true. Now, also in Scripture, there, there are times when they, the ancient writers used hyperbole. They used figurative language at times. So th- there's a practice of understanding, okay, is this a time when he's saying it was 30,000 people or is that a symbol for something else? And there are times when those are different. We can't get into all of those today. But the Bible does, there are instances of figurative language. There is symbolism. There is hyperbole. It exists in there. But we, believe, we begin with the belief that it is true. Okay, the other thing that we need to do when we interact with Scripture is we want to read it in context, in the full context. This is that principle of looking at the picture of a husband and a wife smashing cake in their face, saying, what's the real context? Don't just read one verse and say, oh, okay, that means God is like this, because I read this verse. Or just pick out one verse that says something and say, oh, there's a, a principle that applies to my life. Now, I'm a firm believer that God can use any part of Scripture to inspire, to encourage, uh, to change you, to change your thinking. I believe He can do it. I believe you could probably open up the Bible, put your finger on a verse, and there are times when you say, that is exactly what I needed to hear right now. I do believe that. I believe that there's times you do that and you say, God, show me what I need to hear and you read it and it says something like, you know, and he beat the donkey and you think, what? <laughs> so that is not an accurate way to interact with scripture. Does it sometimes, can God use it? Yes. But we want to be people who understand, okay, what's the real context? You might find inspiration in one verse, but please do not make principles or whole assumptions about God based on one verse without knowing the whole context. A good example is this, at the risk of offending many of us. Uh, Some of us would have this, maybe this Bible verse up on your walls in your house. Some of you have it memorized. You hold to this as truth, and it is truth, but I need to show you an example of how we take things sometimes out of context. There's a very famous verse called Jeremiah 29.11. And God is speaking, and he says, I know the plans I have for you. Anyone familiar with this verse? Plans to prosper you. Plans for your welfare. Now you read that and we hold on to it and say, that is great truth. God knows the plans he has for us. They're for us to prosper and to take care of our welfare. That is great truth. And I believe that that is true. In a a sense. (laughs) But when we read the whole context and we back up, we realize, oh, actually he wasn't talking to Ryan in San Diego in 2014. (laughs) 
And when he says, I have the plans for you, for you to prosper, he wasn't actually talking about me finding a winning lotto, lotto ticket on the ground. I don't think. Maybe. It'd be great, God. All right, so. When I read in context, I realize he's talking to the people of Israel who have been exiled and who are now living in Babylon. And he says, I want you to know, go ahead, start new lives there. Because I still care about your welfare, even when you're in exile. Even when you're not sure if I exist. And I want you to know that I know the plans I have for you, so don't lose hope because I'm going to return you to your home after 70 years. I know what I'm doing. It's okay. Hang on. So can we learn from that one verse? We can. But understand it in the full context instead of taking one verse and saying, this is God's promise for my whole life. We learn a little bit from there, but in the full context, we learn a lot more. So just keep that in mind. Read Scripture in its full context. The other thing we want to do is we want to use Scripture to interpret Scripture. What I mean by that is this. There are times when you may read something in Scripture, and if you just use that verse, you may walk away confused. Maybe you read something and you read that God enacted judgment on people. And you just stop there. And you can say, well, God is a judgmental, wrathful God. And you close the Bible and that's all you ever read. Well, we want to say, is God judgmental and wrathful? Well, God judges, yeah. Is he wrathful? Well, there's times we see him bring wrath on people. So that's who God is, right? Well, we use Scripture to interpret Scripture means read more verses to understand that one. Because you're also going to find that God is patient. You're going to find that he is loving, that he's forgiving, that he's gracious, that he's redeeming and restoring people to himself. He's slow to anger. So you're going to find, oh, you know what? When God brings punishment, sometimes that person has already had their warning and their warning and their warning. So we use Scripture to interpret Scripture without simply sitting on one verse. The same could be true if you read, God is gracious and loving. You could say, great, he's gracious and loving. You stop there and you think, well, then he never punishes anybody. Because he's gracious and loving, but you read other verses, you go, oh, sometimes his love means that there's discipline. So we use scripture to interpret scripture. The next thing is this, is uh, that we want to keep in mind, is that scripture makes sense to its original audience. So we want to ask, what did the original audience hear? When we interact with scripture, I want you to know that, believe it or not, the original audience, I firmly believe, read it, heard it, and said, we get it. Now that's hard to believe. Because <laughs> there's so many times I read it and hear it and say, okay, hmm? <laughs> but Scripture made sense to the original audience. Why? Because it was written for them. It actually wasn't written to me in San Diego, 2014. Is it written so that I can learn from it and learn who God is and how He wants His people to interact? Yes. Does it apply to me in 2014? Yes. But it was not written in our language with our culture in mind. They didn't have smartphones. They didn't have the internet. They didn't have Duck Dynasty or any of those things back then. They probably did have something like Duck Dynasty, I would imagine. The old final graphs look like it. But anyway, um, but yeah, it, it was written to people who when they heard it, they got it. Here's one for you. I even believe that when this guy named John wrote this book called Revelation and he handed the letters to the people in Asia Minor, I believe that they read it and they understood it. That'll mess you up. Really? Someone can understand the book of Revelation? 
I believe the original audience got it. Now, are there things that maybe they would say, I'm not sure about some of this or how this is going to play out? Yeah, of course. But it was with the language to a culture that they got it. They understood. So when we read scripture, we want to say, what did the original audience hear? There are so many people in our world today who don't like God because they read scripture and think it was written to them in the 21st century. And they forget that in the ancient Near East, people thought a little bit differently. <laughs> and they were okay with that then. And we apply and, and place our cultural beliefs in the way we live on a culture from 3,000 years ago and say, why did they act that way? Which I would ask, why would you act the way you did 20 years ago? <laughs> Have you changed? <laughs> Has your perspective changed? So when we read it, we need to ask, what's the original audience here? What did they understand? And when we do that, you find great, deep understanding. Deep understanding. And we'll do our best to do that throughout this series. So we're going to get into our story for today, but as we get into that one, I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 6. So this is in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, and it's uh, about 10 books in, somewhere around there. And as you do that, let's pray as we get started. God, we thank you for this time. Uh, I thank you for, for the Bible, for Scripture. I thank you that you've revealed yourself to us through these words that are inspired. And God, I pray that we could learn from them. And as we learn from them, that we learn more about you. And that we are changed because of who you are and because of what you're doing with your people. And God, help us to honestly interact in a way that is true to the text and not about us, but it's about you. So we give you this time now. In your name, amen. So 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 1. Now this might be a story that some of you are familiar with. This might be one none of you have ever heard before. And either way, we're going to do it either way. So let's uh, go ahead and start. 2 Samuel chapter 6. We'll pick it up in verse 1. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, talking about his soldiers. There's 30,000. David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Baal Judah to bring up, excuse me, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts who is enthroned above the cherubim. They placed the ark of God on a new cart that they might bring it from the house of Abinadav, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadav, were leading the new cart. So far, maybe not a hmm. So they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadav, which was on the hill, and Ahio was walking ahead of the ark. Meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments. And he mentions some different instruments there, which is evidence that you can use instruments to worship God. Verse 6. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out towards the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and the God struck him down there for his irreverence, and he died there by the ark of God. David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. So David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of God Come to me. And he was unwilling to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David with him. And he took it aside to the house 
of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Okay. Hmm. So we read this story. Now, what kind of questions should we ask now reading this short story in Scripture? What are some things that come to mind that we want to know, or you want to know, when we read this? What are some things? Just shout them out. That's, that's so broad. Come on, ask me a, a deeper question. Or more. Okay. So there was, uh, to be fair, Catherine, yes, she goes, what's the context? Okay, yes. So what's a bigger story? See, you're cheating. You're just picking a point. Why did he die? Yeah, that's a good I would want to know that. If I was the original audience, I'd want to know that too. Why did he die? <laughs> what did he do? Yeah, what else? Yeah. Why did that make God so angry? It sounds like the ark was about to fall and he stops it and God kills him. Yeah, I want to know. I want to know that. Yeah. What else? Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we do need a lot of clearing up all the time, so that's good. What, what was that you were going to ask? Okay, yeah. Does, does God hit people? Yeah, he struck him down. Yeah. So there's a new question, yeah. Good question. Okay, so what if he didn't stop it and it did fall? Then what? Yeah. Good question. Any others? <laughs> yeah, okay. Why did David want to bring it, or why did he not want it near him after this event? Yeah. Someone in the earlier service asked, why were they moving the ark in the first place? It's <laughs> a good question. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, what was God really, what's, this, what's the deal, God? What are you really upset about here? Uzzah seemed to be helping. Yeah. Yeah. Here's a question you might want to know. What is the ark? <laughs> I mean, let's just be honest. Some of us might hear this and say, okay, they're moving the ark. What is that? <laughs> you want to know. That's a, it's an important piece of the story here. They're moving something that a guy touches and God kills him. It's important to know in case you ever see an ark. <laughs> You'll want to know. Do I touch it? <laughs> great. Any other questions? Well, you're off to a great start. This is definitely the way we want to interact with Scripture. We want to ask these questions. We want to say, what's the context? <laughs> What's going on? See, because if we just read this story and stop there and make our own conclusions, we might think God is irrational and quick to anger. We might think that, if, that He expects this robotic obedience or something subhuman or superhuman kind of behavior, and if you veer from that, He's going to strike you dead. If we just stop here, that might be what we get. So we ask these questions. So, Let's answer some of those. How about? What is the context? What are things that help us understand the context? Let me begin with my question is, what is the ark? Because this is very important to this story, is what is the ark? And we don't have to turn there, but you can write in your notes, Exodus chapter 25 uh, describes to the Israelites 
how to build all these different instruments used in their worship of Yahweh, or Creator God. And there's lampstands they had to build, and different kind of um, a, a table, and, and curtains, and they had to build this thing called an ark. Now, if you've seen the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark, I actually believe that they did a fantastic job of recreating what the ark probably looked like. And they used scripture to build it. And so it's about four feet long, about two and a half feet wide, two and a half feet high. So it's really not that big, about this big. It was overlaid with gold. It had two of these things called cherubim, which is uh, an angelic type of kind of a creepy looking creature on the top of this thing. And they had their wings pointed at each other which created what they called the mercy seat, or it was intended to give the image of an invisible throne in which the deity would symbolically be on top of that. And the ark had two long poles made of wood that were overlaid with gold, and there was um, rings on each side on the bottom of the ark where the poles would go through. And in Exodus it says, build these poles, put them through the ark, and never take the poles out. So the ark was there. Now the ark was a symbolic representation of the presence of God. It was not the presence of God. This is where Raiders of the Lost Ark gets it wrong. (laughs) You wouldn't open it and say, oh, there's God, oh, melting. So not quite like that. But it represented to the Israelites God's presence with them. And this was a common thing in the ancient Near East, by the way. Egypt, we have depictions of something that looks very similar to the ark that they used in their religious worship. So when the Israelites leave Egypt and God tells them to build the ark, they're not thinking, what? What? That is the craziest thing I ever heard. They probably went, oh, we get it. We know what that was. And the ark would represent the presence of God going with us. We get that. And these weird-looking angelic creatures that are reaching towards each other creating an invisible throne, we get that, because in the ancient Near Eastern world, that actually was somewhat common. So, to know that this ark represented God's presence. And the Israelites then were instructed, how do you handle it? In Numbers chapter 3, it talks about there's uh, the tribe of the Levites were designated to be the priests. And only the Levites could be participate in the acts of worship, of utilizing different things for worship. Uh, in the tabernacle and later in the temple. There was one family of the Levites that said, your job is to take care of the ark. And you are the only ones who can carry this thing. And you, don't, you never touch it. You pick it up by the poles and you carry it. Only one person, the high priest, can ever touch the ark. And he can only touch it when he's bringing a sacrifice of atonement once a year. Because it will later be placed in what's called the Holy of Holies. So the ark was a symbolic representation of the presence of God. It always walked before them when they were wandering in the wilderness. Then later when it was set in the temple, it was to symbolize God is with us. Each instruction giving about the ark and everything that has to do with the tabernacle and all of their worship was very meticulous down to the finest detail. And the point of that was, God said, I want you, when it comes to worshiping me, do not veer from how I want you to do it. The reason why was because, he said, because I am holy. What's this idea of holy? Holy is being set apart, different than anything 
else. And God says, when you worship me, you obey my commands and do it exactly as I say, because I do not want to be confused with any other God out there. I am not like those gods. So when you worship me, I want you to be very careful in how you do it in the ancient system, because that is what will show as an outward representation that I am not like the other gods. So handle the ark with absolute reverence and holiness, because I am not like those other gods. We see other religions with an ark. He says, don't worship it like they do. You're not worshiping the ark, but you're handling it with reverence because it represents who I am. Do it my way and be very careful because this is the distinction between me and all other gods. So when it came to the worship, it was very, very important that they follow God's commands exactly because of all that it represented and symbolized. Okay, so that's a little bit of the context there. Now, also, in, in Scripture, anytime you take something that is supposed to be holy and you don't treat it as holy, you kind of treat it as something that is common, that's another way to talk about that is that is what the definition to blaspheme. So to blaspheme God is to take what is holy and make it common. That's why saying don't blaspheme the name of God, that's taking God's name which should be set apart and using it as just common, everything else. This is not holy. This is not, not different. So the name of God is to be other than anything else. So treat it that way. Okay, a little more context in your Bibles, turn now to 1 Samuel chapter 6. So one book backwards exactly. And we want to know a little bit more about this context. So 1 Samuel chapter 6 verse 1, we're going to read about the ark again, but now it's not in the hands of the Israelites, it's in the hands of this group of people called the Philistines, who were actually enemies of God. They had the ark, and some weird things started happening around them. One, they had these idols to their god, Dagon, who kept falling on their face before the Ark of God. And then this plague kind of came up around them. And so the Philistines said, we need to get this Ark out of here. Because again, they knew this represented the presence of God. They understood that. So in 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 1, it says, The Ark of the Lord had been in the country of the Philistines for seven months. The Philistines called for their priests, And the diviners saying, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how to send it to its place. In other words, they went to their own priest and said, how do we get rid of this ark from from the Israelites? And they said, if you send it away, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but return it to him with a guilt offering. And you'll be healed and it will be known to you why his hand was not removed from you. So in other words, they said, get rid of this and send a guilt offering with it. So they made these little weird-looking gold things and said, that's a guilt offering, and send that with the ark. Let's move down to verse 6. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts when God had dealt severely with them? Did they not allow the people to go, and they departed? Now, therefore, take and prepare. Now, understand this. Take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never been a yoke, and hitch the cows to the cart, and take their calves home away from them. Take the ark of the Lord, and place it on the cart, and put articles of gold, which you will return to him as a guilt offering, in a box by its side, and send it away the way that it may go. 
Watch, if it goes by the way of its own territory to Beth Shemesh, then it has done us this great evil. But if it doesn't, then we'll know that God's hand has not struck us and this all happened by chance. In other words, what they're saying here is we need to send this ark away, so we're going to put, we're going to build a new cart. We're going to attach it to some cows and we're going to let it go. And if it walks back to Israel, then we know that God is in it. That God's presence is here and that he, his hand is against us. So we need to get rid of it. Now, what are some things you notice reading this story that are different than our story when it relates to the ark? Anything that jumps out? What's that? Yeah, I mean, they pick it up and put it on a cart. Yeah, they touched it and there's no evidence that they were struck down. That's kind of interesting to me. So that makes us say, okay, using Scripture, interpret Scripture, maybe Uzzah touching the ark, although he did this, maybe is not the only issue going on. Because the Philistines touched it. They picked it up. They put it on a cart. Yeah, anything else? That's true, too. Yeah, they may have not touched it. You're right. So we don't, we don't fully know. Um, but they did do something. They built a new cart. They put it on it. Now, and no one seems to die from this. It seems to be a good thing. The cows walk it back to its home, which is pretty cool in and of itself. It's a good story right there. As we look at this, though, I want you to notice a few things. How did they transport it? They built, huh? yeah, they built a new cart, it says, okay? They built a new cart. Now, I want you to go back now to 2 Samuel chapter 6, back to our original story. Look in verse 3. Now we're talking about the Israelites. They placed the Ark of God on a new cart that they might bring it from the house. This is the exact same language. It's an identical language as the other one. The story one book earlier. So there's something going on here that the author wants us to know. The way the Philistines transported the Ark, Israelites looked at and said, oh, remember when the Philistines, trans- Philistines transported the Ark? They built a new cart, and that seemed to work. Let's build a new cart and put it on there. Did the Israelites know how they were supposed to transport the ark? Was it with a new cart? No. So they said they were supposed to use their priests, only their priests, from one tribe of the Levites, to carry it by the poles, never touch it, treat it with reverence. They said the Philistines used a cart. Great idea. Way lighter, way more efficient. Progress. Let's do it. So they did what the Philistines did. They took that which was holy and set apart and said, oh, this is how the other people with other gods do it. And they made something that was holy and they made it common. They didn't look at what God had told them in the way to worship and say, yes, let's make sure we worship Yahweh because he is different than all other gods. They said, whatever, it works over there, let's do it here. And the first mistake they made was to say, that which is holy can be common. If God said, I want you to transport it with a new cart, He would have told them to transport it with a new cart. So, the context, now we start to see what's really happening here. See, this story really isn't about Uzzah reaching out and touching a cart, or touching the ark and dying. It's about God's holiness and the people of Israel taking it very serious and saying, you are unlike any other God. The one who messed up in this story was David, not Uzzah. 
at least in part. The mistake was made when David said, let's just do it this way. This will work. So, now, they're transporting it in the cart. It says the oxen were nearly upset, so Uzzah reaches out and he's struck down and dies. If we use a principle of using Scripture to interpret Scripture, we'll find in, and we're not going to go there, you can just write it down if you want to look at it later, Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 through 7, there's a story of priests, sons of Aaron, who are worshiping God in the temple, and it says they light a strange fire, which is a way of saying they essentially lit the candles and burned incense a different way than God instructed to them, and they died (laughs) on the spot. God said, when it comes to my worship, don't make me common. That happened before this one. So by the time of David, they knew the story. Is God being flippant or irrational now? Do you think there was warnings about how to worship him? There's already a precedent set. When it comes to the worship of God and his, the articles for the temple, treat him with absolute reverence. So when Uzzah reaches out, he was already denying or ignoring that God had already warned them hundreds of years earlier. And I guarantee you they knew it. He just said, ah, now how do we know that? Let's get to the original audience point. Do you think the original audience read this story and said, man, God is so irrational and angry? What do you think the original audience thought when they saw this? Or heard this story? Think about that for a moment. Look at David's response. It says, David became angry because of God, God burst, his, burst out against Uzzah. Does it say David became angry at God? It doesn't. It says he becomes angry and he says, I can't even have the ark near me. I believe David was angry at himself. And he said, oh, I knew better. And because of my mistake, Uzzah died. Because I didn't take God seriously and I didn't worship him and hold him up as holy, someone else has died. He became angry at God's outburst, but it didn't say at God. He knew at that moment that they messed up. In fact, he said, I can't even have the ark near me because I know I am guilty here. And the ark of God represents God's presence and the last thing I want to be right now is in the presence of God because I know I'm in trouble. Because I took my holy God and I've been treating him as he's common. Uzzah, we learn a little bit more here too. Sometimes you have to ask, well, what's this word? It says that he reached out and touched it with irreverence. And that's very important. It wasn't just that he touched it. Now, this word is only used once in Hebrew Scripture, and it's right there. The closest thing we have is two other ancient Near Eastern languages. Akkadian language, which I know many of you have studied, um, talks uses a similar word. And when they use it, it means disdain. Like, ah, whatever. Stupid cart's falling. I'll grab it. In Aramaic, a similar word, when they use it, it's, it's negligence. So at the very best, he treated it with negligence or disdain. So we know that something was going on in Uzzah's heart. It wasn't that he was rescuing the ark of God. It's that he was like, why do I even have to do this anyway? 
It was like asking your kids to mow the lawn, you know. That's, that's the same definition of the word. <laughs> Watching them mow. Uzzah was like, ah, I don't even want to be walking near this ark. I don't care. And it's about to fall, so he says, I'll catch it, whatever. He took the holy God and said, you're not holy. Your presence means nothing to me. He made it common. We invite the worship team to start making their way up. Because one of the questions we also want to ask when we read a story is, so what? <laughs> so what can we learn from this? I know that if I see the ark of God, I'm going to treat it with reverence. I learned that. <laughs> and I'm not going to walk anywhere near it, just in case. <laughs> but really, what do we learn? See, again, this story isn't really about David and Uzzah. It's about God being holy and other than all else. And I think it in my life, how many times do I take our holy God and make him common? Now, we don't have specific instructions for worship anymore. There's no symbols that we need to use in, in worship. There's no temple there's no sacrifice that needs to be made once a year because Jesus Christ already made that sacrifice, paid the price, and that's done. And we've been set free. The Holy Spirit of God dwells in each one of us who call Him Lord and follow Him. We are the temple of God now. So there is no active, ritual act of worship that we can screw up. But can we take a holy God and make Him common in our own lives? When is the last time you took a moment just to say, God, you are so much other than all other gods. Or do you live your life as if our God is just one of many? We live in Encinitas. We have plenty of gods to choose from here. Some are religious. Some have to do with what you park in your driveway. Is Jesus on the shelf with those gods? Is our God who created all, whose whole life is about redeeming and restoring and bring us back into relationship with Him, is that God just one of many? Yesterday at the wedding, I was able to hang out with uh, a former student of mine that 14 years ago, he was in a small group that I led. I was 10. And, and he was telling me about his story and kind of his journey and how after high school he got... He and a group of friends all got into, in, into drugs and kind of went on their journey. And some of them now are atheists and some believe. And, and, but he was talking about a time, he said, you know, at that time in my life, you were the first person who showed me that following God wasn't just something separate. It consumed who you were and you, you, we knew you cared for us and you taught us about that God. To which I thought, well, then why did some of you guys become atheists? <laughs> you know. But got me thinking, God, how often are you just a regular part of my life? You're just routine. When's the last time did I stop and say, you are holy and other than? You have the power to change everything. As we end our time, I want to read from, for you a verse from Revelation chapter 4. This is a, a glimpse into heaven. And it describes a cherubim and seraphim, these angelic creatures, and it says that they said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is and who is to come. And in Scripture, anytime you repeat it three times, we've told you before, means there's no, you don't need to do four. There's nothing more holy than three times. So they said, God, you 
are other than all other gods. You are set apart. There is no one like you. There never has been, never is, never will be. You're the only God like this. And it says, When the living creatures gave glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, to Him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before Him who sits on the throne. They'll worship Him who lives forever and ever. And they'll cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are You, Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For You created all things, and because of You they were created, and for You they are created. When we end our time here, I want to challenge us to just take a moment to acknowledge that our God is holy. He is separate. He is other than. And He has always been able to change who we are, to change our world. And He still is that God today. And to take a moment for maybe some of you, for the first time, some of you, the first time in a long time, to say, God, you are worthy of anything and everything I have in me. And I just want to take a moment to acknowledge that you are holy and put you where you belong in my life. So as a team leads us in worship, I'm going to ask you to do this. Is If you are physically able, I want to ask you to take a moment and to make some room and try to get on a knee or both your knees. And let's sing this first song acknowledging, God, you are holy. Now, if you're unable to do that, we get that. You can stand, you can sit, you can just reflect. But however it is, let's get in a posture of worship and say, God, today we acknowledge that you are other than, and we set you where you belong. So pray with me. God, we thank you that you are holy. We thank you that you interact with your people in a way that is unlike any other God. And Lord, even in your judgment, there was patience, there was grace. God, I acknowledge now that you are holy and higher and other than any other God and put you in your rightful place. And I pray that right now that here at Seacoast, we acknowledge you for who you are. And we declare that you are worthy of all honor, of all glory, and all power. Because of who you are, we worship you now, God.